Welcome to Heads Up, the ISC research series that keeps you informed of the latest trends happening in the international schools market. Let's get started with our episode. Hi everyone, I'm Freddie Cloak, School Development Manager at ISC Research. If you're joining us today, you're most likely interested in hearing about the latest trends within the international schools market. My role involves working closely with representatives of established independent schools, mostly from the UK and US, exploring opportunities to expand internationally. ISC Research recently released a white paper about the influential school groups and brands within the international school sector. This podcast will explore the topic further by hearing insights from our very own field researchers. Their intelligence is gathered from the many extensive research conversations they conduct with international school leaders within their regions. Thanks to Sam Fraser, our research director, and Pierre Musk, our East Asia Research Manager, for joining me today to discuss this topic. Sam, I'd like to ensure our audience understands what is meant by school groups within an international context. Could you please start by explaining what we mean by school groups? Hi, everyone. So, yeah, sure, Freddie. Um, so you'll find um, many international schools around the globe operating independently with no sister campuses um, or higher level overarching decision makers, of course. And then alternatively, others exist as part of a, a school group whereby a number of campuses operate under an umbrella. Um, these can be in one country or but quite often span over multiple continents. Uh, as, a, as a company, we have a definition. So to confirm our definition, ISC Research classifies an international school group as one which owns uh, international schools that are part of the group or has a financial interest in international schools by managing them or by providing key services to them without actually owning them. I think it's important to note at this stage, Freddie, that our data doesn't include non-international schools that are owned by these groups. So our figures focus purely on those international campuses. As an example, we recognize the top five international school groups uh, by number of campuses to be Maple Bear Global Schools Limited, Group SEB, Beacon House Group, The City School and North Anglia Education Limited. Just one last point to make, Freddie, on this one that currently, and as of today, we have 598 groups listed as operational on the database. And uh, that's up from 333 in July 2017, which shows, as you can imagine, it's quite a, a large increase. Um, so the market's moving pretty quickly, Freddie. Absolutely, it's quite a significant increase. Um, thanks for that, Sam. And, and where do you think that independent school brand campuses fit within these school groups? Are they a dominant part of the market? Yeah, so I to offer some top line information for you here then. So we currently have a touch over 13,000 international schools in operation on the database. 36% of these schools are part of a group and just over 1% belong to an independent brand such as Dulwich's, Shrewsbury's, Malvern's and, and so on. So 1% plus doesn't feel like a dominant part of the market, but uh, due to you know, high quality teaching faculties, often industry standard digital infrastructure, first rate facilities, and cutting edge techniques surrounding teaching and learning, uh, I suppose as well as prestige and proven track records to top universities, where one of these schools is in a certain city, many parents will be looking to secure a place for their child, so long as it's, of course, financially viable. 
I think an interesting point to make, it's the biggest capex for any school tends to be salaries and benefits. So uh, where independent branded schools are hiring the best teachers they can find, they'll need to charge premium fees to cover these costs, but alongside all of those other things associated with an elite school. Um, so this tends to lead to a greater density of these independent branded schools in wealthier cities and countries such as your, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, Bangkok, Shanghai, Beijing, UAE, Qatar, and so on. I say that being said, uh, we're seeing you know leaders of branded schools focus more on markets with lower fees in recent years, where expansions into to new markets require a bit more creativity. But that's certainly an area the market's heading towards. So looking forward and perhaps gaining a little insight into the future uh, of all future schools in our database, only 25% are not associated with either a group or an independent brand. Um, we see the market in general moving to a group slash brand dominant space as individual investors are less able to enter a market where you know, costs are set up and a lack of brand equity alone often make for an untenable entry position Freddie. Great, thank you, Sam. And the origin of the international schools market partly explains why campuses of UK and US independent school brands have inherited a strong reputation. You mentioned uh, teacher yeah. recruitment, but um, how are Sam, do you, would you say these brands influence the market? Yeah, so at a group or brand head office level, there's an ability to be more granular in your approach to hiring for, for very specific roles. So you can move from your kind of well-rounded individuals to highly skilled specialists. Um, I'd say it's, it's not completely unheard of, but it's, it's relatively unusual for a standalone school to have an individual or a team dedicated solely to innovation or facilities or infrastructure to, or to have you know, constant access to premium education advisors or, or large scale marketing teams. Um, but groups and brands tend to have that. Uh, Groups will have a, a greater level of support in order to focus on innovative approaches and therefore it can really be more proactive when it comes to things like new tech development strategies for learning, education practices, assessment, CPD, and, and the list goes on really. I think it, it, an interesting point to make is that well-being is a term used pretty frequently these days and often there's an association with schools looking to do more in this area as a, as a result of the pandemic. However, we definitely saw the likes of Dulwich Singapore offer standalone wellbeing you know, sessions prior to the pandemic uh, and, and interweaving that within, within their curriculum. And then the likes of Cognita Stanford American International School collapsed their teaching structure for a week to offer a dedicated wellbeing focus prior to the pandemic as well. So I think it's forward-thinking holistic considerations such as these, which, which definitely influence change for sure. I'd say other ways in which I believe brands influence the market are, and I'll, I'll ask the same question to Pierre in a minute. So uh, she'll have some points to make here as well. But um, uh, facilities, independent schools tend to be geographically well positioned and uh, facilities will be high quality too, both from a you know, standard, standard tangible perspective, but also when you're looking virtually at digital infrastructure. I think, um, you know, influence is seen by brand recognition. Brands offer an opportunity to be part of long standing traditions, which is definitely desirable. You know, many uh, simple things such as, you know, uniforms are often recognised as being really important for parents to get to be to have part of that kind of tradition. Um, brands and groups tend to look to have a greater number of associations and memberships and accreditations uh, behind them. 
So this not only offers parents a high level of trust, but allows said group or brand to gain more exposure through these avenues during events and networks and, and so on. I think an important thing to focus on is alumni, which can be a really powerful tool. So when you've got the likes of Kate Middleton as one of your alumni at Mar as Marlborough College does, you know, that, that can be hugely advantageous as I'm sure you can, you can imagine. So global mindedness would be another point. I think there's something most international schools are striving for these days where you've got a group or a brand with campuses in very various locations, it's often really uh, much easier for, for that group to look at things from various lenses. So, um, so that's really important. And then I'd say my final point would be around EAL support, which is growing in necessity for schools whereby you know, more local non-English language speakers are looking to attend international schools. Often groups and brands have very strong understanding of how best to increase student language proficiency through dedicated teams focused on additional support. The only last thing I mentioned is, of course, there'll be standalone schools doing wonderful things in all these areas as well. I'm not saying this is purely for, um, you're, you're going to find these areas purely in, in, in brand and group, brands and groups, but I think it's just more common for groups and brands to have the resources available to be proactive in these, these areas. So uh, I think there's probably enough me speaking, Freddie. So, Pia, like me, you talk with a bunch of international school leaders pretty regularly. How, how would you say school groups and independent school brands, campuses, um, influence practices in international schools in, in East Asia particularly? So, thank you for that, Sam. And hi, Freddie, and hello, everyone. So I think in addition to the many good things that Sam has already mentioned, I do want to build on that. And I want us to look at, uh, I guess, three areas in the market that school groups and brands tend to influence and use examples from East Asia. So the first area is brand visibility. So Sam mentioned brand recognition. So this is related to that. So when independent school brands open new campuses overseas, they're usually very high profile and they help raise awareness of the wider international school options that are available to families. So using Japan as an example. So over the last few months, the international schools market in Japan has been getting a lot of attention in the press as they report about Harrow opening up north and Malvern and Rugby opening in Tokyo. So that's the first area about brand visibility. The second area is about recruitment and retention, which Sam has also touched on earlier. So many school leaders that we've spoken with whose schools are part of much larger groups, they talk about recruitment as a group-wide function, which makes it more efficient and effective. But they also talk about the upsides in retention if you're part of a larger group. So for example, if a teacher wants to move to another province or another country, often they can move to a sister campus. So schools are able to retain good teacher talent within their network. That's the second area about recruitment and retention. The third area is about teaching and learning. And for this one, let's look at China. So as both of you would be aware, it's been very difficult for schools in China to recruit and retain teachers during the pandemic. And one of the things that we've found is the increase of group-wide subject teaching. So like, how does this work? So if a group has, let's say, one IB physics teacher, and they're in the Beijing campus, the group would offer synchronous physics classes online for students in all of their member schools. 
So this is something that started out of necessity because of the pandemic, teachers weren't able to come in. But a few school leaders have mentioned to us, you know, about how they want to keep and enhance this practice because it allows them to offer more specialized or maybe less popular courses to all students within their group. So it's not just the campus that has that marine science teacher, for example, that can offer a marine science class. So brand visibility, recruitment and retention, and teaching and learning. So these are just three ways in which groups and brands influence the market. Great, thank you. Thank you both. Thanks, Sam and Pierre. Um, you definitely both understand more um, than me about how country regulations impact international school brands. So it's very interesting to hear your insights. Um, you were talking there, Pierre, about China. We know it's particularly a hot topic in China uh, where some established foreign independent school brands like Harrow um, have been changing their name to comply with regulations. Could you tell us a bit more about this particular case, Pierre? Yeah, of course. So over the last 12 months or so, there are several areas where the Chinese government has been tightening the rules around foreign influence and education. And we talk about these more in more detail in our China market intelligence report. Uh, one such area is school name. So Freddie, you mentioned Harrow. And last month, Harrow Beijing announced that they are changing their official name. Earlier this year, DuPont Education announced similar changes for their independent schools in China as well. So these changes stem from a policy that prohibits Chinese-owned private schools, or sometimes we call them bilingual schools, to include in their names words like China or international, uh, names of Chinese public schools, and names of foreign places and educational institutions like Harrow or King's College. Thanks, Pierre. Um, and have you seen any evidence of impact of, on the market so far in your discussions with school leaders? Impact in China itself, but also perhaps driving demand elsewhere? So that's an interesting question, because I think if we're just talking about the impact of the school name policies, then it varies by province, by city, or sometimes even by district. And in Harrow's case, for example, they are changing their official name in Beijing, but other Harrow bilingual schools across China, they're not yet changing their names, likely because their local authorities have not told them to do so. But if we're talking about the impact of the wider regulatory environment in China, if we look back at the data, so globally, many of the independent school brands that we know of are from the UK, and an overwhelming majority of their sister schools are in China. But with the pandemic and China's tighter regulatory environment, so some brands may be pivoting to other markets like India, Thailand, and Cambodia. Brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant. Sam, can you give a couple of examples of other types of regulations in other countries that can impact the way international schools have to operate? What's your message to school groups and brands regarding this? Those currently in the market planning for new acquisition and developments and those independent school brands considering overseas opportunities? All right, Freddie. So, I mean, there are, there are a good few regulations I, I could mention. So, uh, yeah, so some laws which are, are worth being aware of, though, are, and, and some many will be aware of already, but um, student nationality caps, I think is a big one, Singapore, China, Japan, South Korea, Turkey, and so on, all have restrictions on nationals attending international schools. 
Um, teacher visa caps based on the number of locals you hire is a big one, uh, particularly in the Middle East, when you have the likes of Bahrainization, Qatarization, Saudization, which depending on the sector requires a certain number of your staff to be local versus uh, foreign hires. You know, if we stick in the Middle East for a little bit longer, um, uh, you know, but also a rule that's gaining traction or a law that's gaining traction in other areas as well. Um, teachers must have degrees in the subject they teach in certain locations, which is, which is a big one. Um, Saudi has fee caps in place for the majority of their schools, unless you're a community school. I think the, the cap there is 60,000 uh, Saudi Arabian Riyal. Um, a, another big one at the moment, which is prevalent in places like Thailand, is a requirement to offer certain subjects such as language, culture, heritage, and religion. And some countries require the national curriculum to be del delivered alongside a foreign curriculum too, which has its own um, issues associated, but not, uh, you know, not uh, overcomable. Uh, other locations uh, uh, demand schools operate a, as not-for-profit, which can turn away a lot of interest, although there are ways around that one in certain circumstances. An interesting one is in locations such as Singapore and Kazakhstan, boys must do military service when they reach 18. So some boys can get exemptions, of course, but um, due to, and that's largely due to university attendance, but this isn't always possible. So that's a, a really interesting one to make sure you're aware of. Um, female sponsorship is a big one in some Muslim countries where females can't sponsor a male spouse. That leads to visa issues, which my wife and I had... Uh, those very issues ourselves in, in Bahrain a good few years ago. And then finally, and more, more recently, I think one to consider is, you know, vaccination requirements. Uh, a big one in countries where, you know, you require a specific brand for entry, which can, you know, disrupt recruitment cycles. So in Kazakhstan, we have Sputnik V here, which isn't always acknowledged in all countries. Um, so my the second part of your question, my message would simply be to consider the type of schools you're looking to open and to make sure the rules and regulations within X country uh, you're looking to enter make for a viable foundation for you to operate within. Um, for some rules, there are relatively easy workarounds, so it's worth speaking to schools currently operating in a country alongside school consultants, uh, such as Peer in East Asia, for example, to understand how best to navigate you know, things like a school startup. Um, obviously, do your own research, but spending some funds on an external feasibility report is important as there uh, without any doubt will always be something you haven't considered. Thanks, Sam. Um, and my final question is to both, both of you. At a global level, what group developments do you think are ones to watch that perhaps surprised you most? Um, starting with you, Sam, what do you think on that? Uh, I'm, I'm going to let Pia start on this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure, if that's sure. okay. So this is this is one that I'm particularly excited about. So, and Freddie, you mentioned um, developments that surprised me. So not so these aren't so much things that surprise me, but things that I do want to highlight and things that I am personally interested in. Uh, that's why I wanted to go first. So the first one is about school groups investing in learning platforms. So two examples from last year. So one, you've got Inspired Education acquiring Way Education, which is known for its online live teaching and learning platform. So two is a Cognita launching an online tutoring service called Cognita Tutoring, which is supported by Century Learning Platform. So that's the first one. The second development is 
as I said, you're something I personally want to see more of. And this is about groups taking a more active role in issues like DIJ, diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, uh, well-being, which Sam mentioned earlier, and sustainability. So, for example, Nord Anglia Education established uh, what they call the Global Equality, Diversity, and Inclusion Steering Group. So they have regional and global representatives, but they also have school level ambassadors. And the goal of the group really is to advance the DEIJ agenda across their entire network of schools. So, so my two ones, again, so the school groups investing in learning platforms and school groups taking a more active role in advocacies like DEIJ. So I think these are two developments that I find very interesting to know and interesting to watch. So I'm going to turn you over to Sam. I'm going to trump you here, Pia, with four areas to highlight. So, so first, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So firstly, I think Harrow with Amity Education Group and Wellington College with Unity Group, both entering the market in India with, with plans to have four campuses each. I, I think the area of intrigue there for me is around the kind of higher fee point. And to see how that fee point really holds up in a country where fees have traditionally been a lot lower um, than, than you know, the entry point that those two uh, brands are likely to have to enter at. So point of one. Secondly, I'd say staying with Wellington. So um, Wellington College, uh, you know, opening schools via a partnership with Singaporean billionaire Peter Lim. Um, the agreement between the two is to open a school in Singapore, one in Indonesia and one in Malaysia. Um, all three locations are really very different in terms of market entry and regulations and so on. So I, I'm, gonna, I, I'm interested to see how, you know, Wellington, you know, focuses their intention first and how, how that kind of moves forward and how they diversify their product to, uh, to accommodate all three of those different locations. I think third point would be the move which saw Dulwich College International DCI rebrand to EIM. Uh, this was a surprise, but I think it was a really good move in allowing, you know, a team to create a more diversified portfolio, including the Green School Bali, which no doubt would be high up on, the, on a lot of groups' wish lists, and the acquisition of their Swiss, Swiss International School too. So it was interesting to see that, you know, that uh, the, the brand, which then kind of had, created an umbrella uh, and, uh, and then basically went and became a group. Um, so I think, I wonder if there'll be more uh, brands which which maneuver down that path and then finally I'm really excited to see how CSU schools in collaboration with ISS form so I, I've spoken with the owners of the parent company Lumo Education a couple of times and I think they've got a wonderful product with an incredibly reasonable setup fee and it really makes for you know um, uh, the the opening of a of a branded school very very reasonably priced so I wonder uh, whether there'll be more uh, groups that will look for, for that kind of reasonably priced model. Um, so obviously there's a lot more going on in the market at the moment, Freddie, but um, I think these are some of the really interesting areas along with the, the points that Pierre made uh, to keep your eyes on. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really exciting that there's this greater diversity of both brands and there's this greater diversity of both groups. So we're not just seeing a, a growth uh, of what was from before we're seeing a lot of new things and a lot of new types of brands and groups thanks so much both of you for sharing your insights today um, and to the audience if you'd like to know more about trends related to school groups and the development of international school brands worldwide please do head over to our website if you haven't already to download a free copy of this white paper under www.iscresearch.com 
slash intelligence. Thanks again to Sam and Pierre, and thanks to everyone for watching and listening at home to today's ICB Search Heads Up podcast. Thank you. For more information about Heads Up, including access to previous episodes, please visit iscforschools.com slash heads up. Until next time.